We'll be in Mark chapter 7, verses 14 through 30. Mark chapter 7, verses 14 through 30. And he called the people to him again and said to them, Hear me, all of you, and understand, there is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him. But the things that come out of a person are what defile him. And what he had, and what, excuse me, and when he had entered the house and left the people, his disciples asked him about the parable. And he said to them, Then are you also without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him, since it enters not his heart, but his stomach, and is expelled? Thus he declared all foods clean. And he said, What comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of the, of the man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, and foolishness. All these evil, all these evil things come from within, and they defile a person. And from there he arose and went away, went away to the region of Tyre and Sidon. And he entered a house and did not want anyone to know, yet he could not be hidden. But immediately a woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit heard of him and came and fell down at his feet. Now the woman was a Gentile, a Syrophoenician by birth, and she begged him to cast the demon out of her daughter. And he said to her, Let the children be fed first, for it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. But she answered him, Yes, Lord, yet even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. And he said to her, For this statement you may go your way. The demon has left your daughter. And she went home and found the child lying in bed and the demon gone. We pray that the Lord uses this to bless us this day. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, I trust you um, had an enjoyable Thanksgiving. I hope that you did. If it was even a little bit as uh, enjoyable as mine, then you had a great one. Um, one of the things that my wife made a number of scrumptious delights, but uh, one of the things was some homemade ice cream. And, um, you know, as the ice cream, if you've done this before, of course, we had a whole discussion about the fact that now you just plug it in. You know, when I was a kid... All the kids had to take turns cranking, but that aside, um, you know, as it gets close to being done, it thickens, right? It, it, it gets slower and slower because it, because it thickens. And that's exactly uh, what's happening with our plot here today. This isn't just a standalone um, account. I mean, you could look at it that way, and there are certainly things that you could draw from the account if you just started and ended with this specific set of verses in Mark 7 about the Syro-Phoenician woman's faith. But this is intimately tied, integrally tied to what it is that's been happening prior to it. It's building on the previous events and at the same time reveals something new. So in this account, the location matters. Um, the person that Jesus encounters matters, and the exchange of the words that they use, it all matters in what it is that's actually being communicated and the richness of what's going on. So leading up to this and including this, we have this whole theme of purity, or you could almost even say impurity, 
that's going on that, that, that has brought us to this point. And um, this time, though, there is a decidedly different outcome when this issue is brought up. So remember, the disciples were supposed to go originally to Gentile territory, and they were diverted back to Jewish territory. And then we got to, to where the Pharisees criticized the disciples because they didn't uh, hold to the man-made law of washing their hands before they ate. Um, and that resulted in Jesus judging them, leveling judgment against the Pharisees and the scribes that came from Jerusalem. And then Jesus goes, uh, goes on to teach all of the people about impurity and, uh, and that uh, it isn't from out, uh, fr- the things coming in from outside, but it's from within that determine whether or not something is defiled. And now they've hit the road again. But it's that theme that's going on when they take off again. And so we get to our verse, our first verse here, verse 24, and it says, And from there he arose and went away to the region of Tyre and Sidon. And so, as I mentioned, the, the location is important. And this is, uh, you know, um, it, it's both important and it's indistinct. So in other words, it's important because one of the things that we know for sure is this region of Tyre and Sidon is Gentile area. So now you already know, okay, they were supposed to go to the Gentiles to begin with a little while back, and Jesus diverted, and now the disciples have been exposed to this teaching that has taken place between Jesus and the Pharisees and Jesus and the scribes that came down from Jerusalem. So now he's basically saying, okay, now we're going to head into Gentile territory in a different direction, but they're going to leave the area of Galilee. Um, now, some, uh, depending on what version of the, uh, of the Bible you have, some may just say Tyre, and they don't add the Ansidon. But either way, it's the region of Tyre. And so that area is going to be somewhere between 20 and 30 miles north and west of where they just were in, in Galilee. So they're going to travel north and west. They're going to get up closer to the Mediterranean Sea. So it's still a port city that's going to be up against the Mediterranean Sea. And it's an important trading city. It's, uh, it's, it's going to be more of a metro area type, uh, type place. And they're going to have considerably more economic influence than Galilee. So Jesus is going from the whole region of Galilee that is basically exclusively Jewish or primarily Jewish. He's now going to a territory that's more of a metropolitan area and that is almost exclusively Gentile. And we don't know exactly where it is that he's going. We know that generally Jesus prefers the country to the city. It's not that he's never in cities, but he's usually in either very small towns or he's in the country area. But what we do know is that he's trying to go somewhere to just lay low and get some rest. So that's what's happening here. He's looking for a house. So this house that it's uh, referring to in verse 24 here. And there he arose and went away to the region of Tyre and Sidon, and he entered a house and did not want anyone to know, yet he could not be hidden. So basically he's looking for a house, not to start up a base of operations, but basically he's looking for a place to stay. He wants to rest. He wants to be out of view. He wants to catch his breath. And um, uh, unfortunately for him, that is absolutely not what happens for him. Now, just to make sure I give you a sufficient um, um, characterization of where it is they are. So the fact that they're in Gentile territory means that not only are they not, uh, they didn't, the people there didn't grow up being taught 
the Jewish scriptures, being taught the Torah, being taught the law, and all of those kinds of things. But that the people in that area are likely to be antagonistic to the Jews. In fact, this is where... Um, uh, some time before then, when it was called Phoenicia, this was the home to Jezebel. So that has a long history of being completely antagonistic um, to Israel and, and to God themselves, and to the Jews. However, we know, uh, just like it says here, yet he could not be hidden. Jesus was unable to avoid attention, and the reason is, I'm going to flip back here to Mark 3, verses 7 and 8. This is, so this is closer to when Jesus started his ministry. In Mark 3, verses 7 and 8, this is where um, this great crowd is following Jesus. It says, Jesus withdrew from his disciples to the sea, and a great crowd followed from Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem and Idumea and from beyond the Jordan and from around Tyre and Sidon. So we have right there that there were already people that were coming down from the area of Tyre and Sidon um, to come see Jesus. But now that Jesus is actually traveling to the region of Tyre and Sidon, there's no chance at all that he's going to you know, just slide in unnoticed. That's absolutely not what's going to happen. So then you enter in, uh, you might say, the female lead of the story. Um, we have this woman. So let's read about her in verses 25 and 26. But immediately, a woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit heard of him and came and fell down at his feet. Now the woman was a Gentile, a Syrophoenician by birth, and she begged him to cast out the demon out of her daughter. So the way that Mark has laid this out is he gives us uh, the answer to a couple of questions. It's, it's, the, it's his method of telling the story. So he actually starts with giving the why before he actually addresses giving the who. So he's talking about why it is that she has come to him at the front end of that verse. It says, but immediately a woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit heard of him. So he's laying the groundwork for the reader to know this is why it is that she is coming to him. And then he addresses uh, the fact of who she is. So she comes to him. She's coming to him both in deep respect. She's coming to him out of complete grief and exasperation. And then it's after that that, um, that Mark gives us a picture of who she actually is. She had, uh, speaking of the daughter, the little daughter had an unclean spirit. She came, fell down at his feet, and then he goes on to say, by the way, this is, here are some details about the woman, Gentile, Syrophoenician by birth. Now, to us today, we read that, and we probably don't get a really good grasp of what that means, but to those disciples at that particular time, his apostles and the other disciples that were with Jesus during his ministry, they would have had a sense of what all of this detail means. In fact, the original readers and those in this area and other Romans and other Gentiles that would have read this would have uh, absorbed what it is that's being communicated here. And this is, I, I had to put down a quote that I thought was pretty good from, from one commentator who says, verse 26 reads like a crescendo of demerit. She is a woman, a Greek Gentile, from infamous pagans of Syrian Phoenicia. So she has a lot of things working against her. She's a woman. She's a Greek Gentile. 
and she's from infamous pagans of Syrian Phoenicia. And so what that is also implying, besides the fact of the, of the Gentile and, and being female, is the fact that she, um, it, she, her request itself is for her daughter to have a, uh, a demon um, you know, exercised from her daughter by Christ. And so there's a sense that there's an implication, okay, you come from an area where cult worship takes place, where idol worship takes place, where they're messing around with these demons and these false gods. And so here you are, you're a woman, you're a Gentile, you live where this funny business takes place, and now that your daughter has a demon, you're coming to Jesus. So... This is helping us to understand everything that is about to take place between, between Jesus and this woman. So, um, the question is this. Does Jesus, obviously knowing her, um, her status, her basically lowly status, this is, um, there, there's something unique about that particular combination, but has Jesus healed other people that were of lowly status? Of course he has. Is there anything about this woman's status that would have prevented him from go ahead and granting this? No, there's not. In fact, he does end up doing it. So it begs the question, why does Mark go to such pains to make sure that he's describing her status? She lays out the request. Her daughter's uh, daughter's possessed by a demon. She's throwing herself out of grief and out of deep respect for Christ that this thing might might, might be done. But Mark is articulating that this is the pedigree or this is the resume um, of this woman because this is for the purpose of the disciples, they're the ones that need to know where it is that she's coming from and what, how Jesus' ministry is taking a transition. He's holding their hand. He's spoon-feeding them. Think about this as far as the, the apostles struggling with this particular issue. You have the entire gospel of Luke and everything that takes place in the life of Jesus. Then you get into Acts, and during the course of Luke and Acts, you figure you have the entire life of Jesus, you have the death of Jesus, you have the resurrection of Jesus, you have the apostles having received um, you know, special revelation, you know, when the angel tells them, why are you still looking in the sky, and all of a sudden they start to understand and put it all together, right? And all of these things are happening that benefit the apostles, and then the apostles are going around and taking um, the gospel to the world. All of that is happening. It takes all the way until Acts chapter 10... For, G, for Peter to have the vision of the animals being lowered in the sheep. And it is not until Acts 10, verses 34 and 35, where it reads like this. So Peter opened his mouth and said, Truly I understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. Now, does that give you a better sense of how big of a struggle this was for these disciples to think that, wait a minute, Gentiles? Come on now, hold on. 
wait a minute, a female Gentile? Wait a minute, a female Gentile that comes from this area where they do all this, these cultic practices and her own daughter is filled with a demon? That's what Jesus is doing. He's bringing them along. The disciples couldn't go to the Gentile region to begin with. Then they sit and listen to Jesus judge the Pharisees. Then he gives the teaching to all of the people about, no, 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 impurity and defilement come from within, not from outside. And now he actually takes them to Gentile area. And now Mark lays out the status of this particular woman And so Jesus is going to run with all that. This is all part of the plan. Now, all of that is important to understand going into verses 27 and 28. Because in verses 27 and 28, if you do not realize that that is what Jesus is doing, and that it's the disciples that have the big hang-up, and that have the issues that he's dealing with, you could read the exchange that Jesus has with this woman and think he's, is he being a little bit dismissive? Is he being condescending? Is this borderline rude? Like, what is Jesus doing that he would talk to this woman in this way? But when you realize that that is the background and that's everything that's going on, all of these things start to come into clearer focus. All right, let's read verses 27 and 28, the actual exchange. And he said to her, so she's made her request. He said to her, Let the children be fed first, for it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. But she answered him, Yes, Lord, yet even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. So, again, if you didn't really understand the background, what it almost looks like is that Jesus is is being borderline rude and that somehow she manages to use her own wit to uh, overcome, to defeat Jesus's argument, at which time he goes, oh, well, that's a good one. I guess I'll give you what you want. And, And that's not at all what's happening, that somehow he acquiesces to her because she bested him in some sense. No, this is all being done on purpose. Um, I've, I've, uh, I've testified in my law enforcement career. I have testified in a lot of uh, jury trials. And this is what this reminds me of, is that, you know, the prosecutor knows what they're going to ask uh, the witness. And in this case, you know, if it's, a, if it's a police officer, you know what they're going to ask. And you know what it is that they're trying to illustrate. But all of it is being done in a certain way to draw the information out of the witness so that it presents a picture. It's presenting a story to the watching jury. So... You know, you know, what did you see at that time, officer? Oh, well, at that time I saw the person doing this and I saw the person doing that. He was crawling through the window. He was wearing a mask and he was crawling through a window. And so it piqued my curiosity. Oh, what did you do next? You know, and you're helping to paint the picture, not for the sake of the prosecutor. And it's not being done for the sake of the police officer. It's being done for the sake of the jury. And in my analogy here, the jury are the disciples. Jesus is going about this, and he is questioning in a very specific way to gain very specific answers, all for the benefit of those that are watching, for the disciples that are watching. So in light of that, watch, watch what happens. He does that, I would, I would say, in four things that Jesus says 
in uh, verses 27, in uh, verse 27 here. The first thing that he does is he says, let the children be fed first. So he references the children. Now, the Israelites themselves considered themselves the children of God, right? They were the ones that received the Abrahamic covenant, and they were Abraham's descendants. Therefore, they were children of Abraham. As children, that was a common reference for them. So Jesus is doing this on purpose. They were the ones that were given the Torah. They are the children. And then second, he uses the word first. So in verse 27, it says, let the children be fed first. So again, this is for the benefit of his disciples that are watching. He's saying, okay, let the children, so he's basically talking about them, let them be fed first. So he's feeding right into the way they already think. This is what's going on in their minds. We're the children. We're the ones that get it first. That's right. So he's acknowledging the primacy of Israel, but here's the thing. Jesus is not saying it in a way that would be at the expense of all the other nations. See, that was their wrong thinking. Is In their minds, it's Israel and Israel only, end of story, full stop. Jesus is saying first, which means he's leaving room for there will be others after that. So in light of that, there is uh, in Isaiah 42 and verse 1, so one of the, uh, one of the many messianic um, promises here, it says, Behold my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. So it's referring to Christ, and what is he going to do? He's going to bring justice to Israel. No, he's going to bring justice to the nations. Isaiah 49 and verse 6, speaking of Israel itself, Israel is a light for themselves, so everybody can look up to them and go, wow, look how great they are. No, he is a light for the nations. Why? That my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. The whole point of Israel was to serve as God's people so that they would be a light to all the nations so that the salvation would extend to all of the earth which was the original design of Adam and Eve and Eden to begin with. They were supposed to expand prior to the fall. That was supposed to take place over all the earth, and that's where we're headed ultimately anyway. But that is what Israel is supposed to do. It's not supposed to be Israel and Israel alone. They are the light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. And then again in Isaiah 61, verse 11, the Lord God will cause righteousness and praise to sprout up before all the nations. So in other words, they, they're not excluded. This first is true. That is absolutely accurate. They get primacy. They get the first bite of the apple, but they are not the only ones that get a bite. And not only is Jesus um, using this language to, uh, to, to try to demonstrate to the disciples, but basically he's almost baiting the woman. So again, a very wisely worded question to elicit the answer that he's looking for. So he is saying to the woman now, in, front, in their hearing, okay, woman, but the children get to eat first. So he's, he's leaving that window open for her. And then still in the same line there, what, uh, the other term that he uses is bread. Let the children be fed first, for it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. Bread, you know full well. You could just go to John chapter 6 alone and see that Jesus is referred to as the bread of life. 
He's referred to as the bread of God. He's referred to as the living bread that came down from heaven. So again, Jesus is making all of these connections. He's, he's saying, that yes, they are the, the, Israel are the children. Yes, they get it first. Yes, it is the bread that is provided, not just originally to Israel, but to all of uh, for, to all the nations. And then lastly, he does something which I would say is actually very clever, is he brings in this whole term of dogs. So he says then, and uh, it's not right to take the children's bread, so Israel's bread, and throw it to the dogs. So the reference to dogs is there because the Jews would frequently refer to Gentiles as dogs. Now, their reference to dogs was a reference of those street-scavenging dogs that nobody wanted anything to do with their despicable beings. That's how they intended it. But Jesus is actually using a term here that actually means little dogs. It's almost like, uh, like puppies or um, a small dog. It's, it's more of a house dog. Not that they, um, the Jewish people at that time didn't necessarily have pets, you know, dogs as pets, but, but just like we tend to do today, if you have a small dog, you know, a little, a little fuzzy puppy, you let that dog wandering around. That's the type of dog that's being referred to here. It's actually a, a small dog. And so, again, he's doing two things. He's hooking the disciples, the Jews, by, by referring to them as dogs. You call them dogs. But he's actually giving it a term that is not nearly as offensive, and he's leaving a little bit of room now for the woman to give a response. This is all, you know, masterfully orchestrated. And then in verse 28, we see her response. But she answered him, Yes, Lord, yet even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. So you can see she does not respond as if she's offended by being called a dog. I mean, remember, she's even now at this point lumping in her own daughter because her daughter is the one that needs healing. And Jesus says, should I give, you know, should, should the crumbs... Or, I'm sorry, should, uh, should the bread go to the dog? So she is acknowledging for herself and for her daughter um, that, uh, that, she's, that she's not offended but being humbled at all. And, of course, it plays right into Jesus' hand of everything that he's trying to, to teach the disciples. And these crumbs that are being referred to, it'd be like scraps. So we've all seen kids eating at a high chair, Right? <laughs> We've all seen kids eating at a high chair. That stuff goes everywhere. And that stuff always lands on the floor. And then if you have a small dog in your house, what does that dog do? He comes over and eats the crumbs. But here is the really neat thing to think about. When does the dog eat the crumbs, the household dog eat the crumbs? At the same time as the kids. The kids are spilling over making a mess, and even the little dog gets to eat at the same time. That You don't, you know, hold the dog generally. It, you know, he's making a point the dogs aren't, aren't held off. And so that's what she is saying is that, yeah, but even the little dog gets to eat the crumbs. And even in what she's saying, she's demonstrating as far as the timing, like they don't have to wait until a, uh, a much later time. So then in verse, 20, uh, verse 29, we have the for this statement statement. Uh, And he said to her, for this statement, 
you may go your way. The demon has left your daughter. You know, there was nothing magical about her statement. There was not like she said the the right series of words. She did not use her wit to best the Son of God. She demonstrated humility and faith. You know, the Pharisees and those scribes that came down from Jerusalem, they were hard-hearted. The disciples themselves, they were dull of hearing. And right here we have a Gentile female confidently displaying her faith. They were Jewish men with the law. She was a Gentile woman without the law. The Jewish men sought salvation in the law. She displayed faith in the fulfiller of the law. This woman put all of them to shame is what's happening. I don't know if you you recall and... and, uh, This goes back to a question that was uh, raised right at the end of Sunday school as well. But uh, when Jesus, uh, the last time, when Jesus was talking about the whole from within, um, I made reference to the fact that that was actually called a parable. It can also be referred to as a riddle um, when he says, hey, you know, it it comes from within. And what uh, the comment that I made last time is the purpose for these parables or for these riddles is that they demand ongoing reflection which is essentially what uh, Pastor Nick was saying as well. He says these things because they require the person that wants to know more to think about it, to chew on it, to meditate, to research, and to go, okay, hold on a second, to talk to others, to seek counsel, and to try to understand more. That's the way that Jesus is, is feeding truth, even in the sense of parables or, or riddles, if you want to put it that way. And so what's beautiful about what she's doing here is that she demonstrates her faith using Jesus' own parable. She stays within the confines of this same parable. So in other words, he provided a parable about the children, bread, dogs, and she was able to somehow digest that, have enough faith to then turn around from within the same parable and to say, yeah, but even the dogs, these little dogs that you're referring to, get the scraps that fall off the table. And then in verse 30, Jesus acknowledges that truth faith as demonstrated by the this statement and granted her request. So, Here's the point that I want to draw out of this for for us today. First of all, if you're an unbeliever, if you're on the fence, if you're you're not sure you're all in on on this kind of thing, um, I would say that even if you don't know God's word well, that you don't have to. This woman, clearly, she didn't grow up in a home where she was taught, uh, taught the law. And yet she displayed a faith before Christ that was a saving faith. All that it requires is repentance of sin and faith in Christ as a Savior. You could be a 50-year-old unbeliever that never missed church a single week of your grown life, of your youth and your grown life, and be in a worse position than the person who comes to church for the first time 
here's the gospel, here's that they must repent and believe, and they obey because that is the confines. Those are the terms that, that God has outlined for salvation, and you are in an uh, eternally better position than the person that knows the Bible forward and backward. You have to come to God on his terms, but it doesn't mean that you have to clean up first. His terms are, do you know you're a sinner? Do you acknowledge that sin? And do you acknowledge that there's only one way of salvation? We read it out of the Nicene Creed there. We read that paragraph about Christ. Do you believe that that is the identity of Christ, the biblical Christ? Then you can be saved. Now, for for the believers, I want to bring two things to into view out of this. First of all, are there any dogs in your perspective? The, the disciples' versions of dogs, not the one that Jesus presented of um, that come to the table and are welcome in the house. Is there anyone in your life that if they came to dramatic faith, like they had just a an incredible testimony about how God brought them to faith that you would actually find yourself humbled or even embarrassed because you thought they were too far gone or you didn't want to talk to them or, you know, whatever it is. And I'm preaching to myself here too, just so you know. You know, is there anybody that fits in some category in your head that's not worth it, that's not worthy, that as far as you concern, you are concerned you know, you're not ready to speak the truth of the gospel to that person for hang up A, B, C, D, whatever they are. I told you, this is not unique to us. Peter himself clearly struggled. The disciples clearly struggled. It took until Acts chapter 10, 10 for him to say, oh, okay, I think I get it, you know, as it relates to this specific issue. Secondly, I would just tell you that God wants us to... This woman came to him with a request. And I just said, as far as unbelievers are concerned, you don't have to know God's scripture forward and backward, and you don't have to get your life all cleaned up before you come to Christ. But as it relates to believers, we have to make our requests known to God on his terms. She did not come to Jesus flippantly looking for a freebie. And I think that is the sense that our culture tends to look at prayer. That God is there and that we go to him as a gimme. You know, God, if you love, you will make my life better. We probably don't say it quite that explicitly, but in our own mind and in our heart of hearts while we're praying, our requests sound very much like, Make my life easier. Make my life better. Make me fill in the blank. More money, healthier, respect, titles. Lord, make things for me and my life better. And that is not how this woman came to Christ, how she brought her request request to Christ, nor is that how we are to bring our requests to Christ. She did not best him. She heard him. She digested what, she, what he said, and she responded in faith. 
So how does that relate to us? Do you hear what he's saying? Do you have your head in the word? Are you digesting what he's saying? And then respond within the confines of how these requests, requests should be made. And I'll help you with that right here with five references. I'm not going to read them all. I'll just tell you what they get at. And so here's my, here's my question for you, as, as I just mentioned these uh, to close with. What do your requests sound like? Are they made within uh, respect of God's word or irrespective of God's word? First Peter 5, 6, and 7. Are your requests, requests made humbly while you cast your anxiety on him? Philippians 4, 6, and 7. When you make your requests, are, they not, are you not anxious? But are you, making, uh, are you with thanksgiving letting your requests be made known? In James 1.6, do you believe and not doubt? Nehemiah 4 verse 9, where it demonstrates that they both prayed and worked. In other words, the prayer came first and then they got to work. And then Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. When you make your requests, do you trust in the Lord with all your heart and not lean on your own understanding? Do these things characterize your request before God? That's how they characterized this woman's request before God. She came to him in humility. She came to him a broken woman. She came to him in faith. She responded to what was being said directly from the Savior, digested that, and came right back to him with her faith-filled, humble request. And those are the terms on which we must go before the throne. Faith-filled, humble requests. Not freebies. Effortless freebies. God, give me. This is what I would like. This is how things, I would like things to change. No. We go to him on his terms. Praise God. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we are grateful for this woman's example. We, like the disciples, when we see how she um, treated you, how she responded to you, we too can be put to shame, Lord. We come to you um, uh, sometimes, Lord, with a gimme, gimme, gimme attitude. And we ask for forgiveness for that. But, Lord, we are grateful that you teach us, you conform us, you, you, you train us, Lord, you sanctify us. Lord, help us to make our requests to you on your terms. Lord, help us to be humble when we come to you. Help us not to be anxious. Help us to bring our requests with thanksgiving. Help us to believe and not doubt. Help us to be able to pray and lay them out before you, but be ready to get after it and go to work. Lord, help us to trust in you with our whole heart and not to lean on our own understanding. You will answer as you see fit. Thank you for that. In Jesus' name, amen.